Matthew chapter 26. We're looking to look at uh, verse 1 through 30. I'm not going to read the text because it's lengthy, but you'll be able to catch it as we move along. But uh, the message is entitled, What is your attitude towards Jesus? Very important question. Jesus is a few days away from the cross. The city of Jerusalem has grown from probably 20,000 to about 150,000 or so, with pilgrims coming to celebrate the Passover feast, uh, one of the three that are celebrated every day by law and the commanded. And he's just instructed his disciples about the second coming, and now the plot to kill Jesus is about to take place. So I want to point out three groups of individuals regarding their attitude towards Jesus here in the first 30 verses of chapter 26. They consist of the following. First, the men who hated Jesus, verse 1 through 5. Secondly, we have the woman who loved Jesus, verse 6 through 13. And third, we have the man who betrayed Jesus in verses 14 to 30. We begin with the men who hated Jesus. They are very clear. They are foundational because that always comes first before those who love God. The world hates Jesus. Never make a mistake of that. Okay? Verse 1 and 2. The trusty prophetic words about the crucifixion of Jesus. Notice the setting and the time is stated. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these things. The phrase appears five times, natural division for the five discourses. The first one's the Sermon on the Mount. The key phrase that we find here is found in 728 of Matthew. The second is the instruction to the twelve. The key phrase is found from chapter 11, verse 1. Then you have the kingdom parables. The phrase is found in 1353. And then the Christian community in 19.1, the phrase is found. And then here, of course, in 26.1, which is describing the discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. Five major discourses. Now, the phrase finished all these things refers specifically to the end of the Olivet Discourse here about Matthew 24 and 25, dealing with the coming judgment to the Jew during the tribulation, great tribulation, and for the utmost, the teaching ministry of Jesus is done. He does not teach from here on. He's under his passion now. Also, he warned the Jews about being ready for a second coming. And he also revealed his judgment to the nation for the treatment of the Jew during the reign of of the Antichrist. That's what he's finished saying. Now the audience of Jesus is also stated that he said this to his disciples there in verse 1. And of course in chapter 24 and 25 he only spoke to four of them. Um, Mark 13, 3 gives us Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So eight were missing. Now Jesus reminds them, all 12 of them, again about the reality of his death. In verse 2, it says, you know that after two days in the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The time of the Passover is indicated to be in two days. This is still Tuesday. Mark confirms this in Mark 14, verse 1 and 3. The two days would be Thursday the 14th when the Passover was eaten the evening of Thursday, listen carefully, 
would be Friday the 15th because the Jewish day begins evening and morning. Are we clear on this? This is where we Westerners get all messed up with the days, okay, and counting them. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is on the 15th to the 21st, seven days. So the 15th is the Holy Convocation of Sabbath. The 7th is the Holy Convocation of Sabbath. So you can have three Sabbaths in that one week. The regular Sabbath and the first and the seventh. Three Sabbaths in one week. Okay? Now, the first day they kill the Passover, Mark fourteen twelve says, of the Unleavened Feast. Right when Jesus died is when you kill the Passover. All right? It lines up perfectly. Now, notice the Son of Man refers to himself, uh, the God-man, the incarnation, the Messiah of God promised to Adam and everyone after him, the seed of the woman, virgin birth, uh, virgin behold, a virgin shall bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, God with us, in Isaiah seven fourteen, Matthew picks it up in fulfillment of that. Uh, the revelation was not new. It says, notice, he will be delivered of to be crucified. So what he's telling the 12 is not new. They've heard it before. Jesus repeated this from uh, Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi that he was going to die and be raised from the dead. Every time he never mentioned his death without his resurrection. Five times. Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22, and 23, chapter 20, verse 18, and 19. Five times. And if he mentioned it five times, probably mentioned it 50 times. Right over their head. Why? Because the disciples, being Jews, had the Jewish mind, the present age, evil, the age to come, the millennial kingdom. In fact, Luke 19, 11 tells us that when they were approaching Jerusalem, they knew that they were going to reign with Jesus, that he was going to knock off Rome and put up the kingdom. That's why James and John asked of Jesus the right and the left hand, right? And then the ten got ticked off at the two because the two beat the ten to it, right? All three, all twelve have it, right? The dirty dozen. Now, um, Jesus revealed to them the plan of God in spite of their tragic disappointment. Uh, when you were growing up, your parents disappointed you often. You thought they were the most cruel people in the world. Because you thought you had all the wisdom with you. That's the same as God. He's so far ahead of us. So far. Look at verse 3 and 4. The crafty plot by the corrupt leaders to kill Jesus. The three groups are identified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. The chief priests were those who were in position of interceding for sinners. Yet they're rotten. So what are they worth? They're worthless intercessors. If you regard iniquity in your heart, God does not hear you. Psalm 66, 18. Wow. Not only that, but the priests were all Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in spirits, angels, or the resurrection. Wow. What are they doing being leaders of Israel? The scribes were the transcribers, the interpreters, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, the elders, the elderly men. Supposedly the gray head, the hoary head, as the old King James says. Hopefully wise, but not these guys. This comprised the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the land. Strange bedfellows will come together at their common hatred of one person. Once they're done with them, they'll move on to the next person. That's what the liberals don't understand today. All the worker ants, they'll be the next to be devoured by the leaders. 
once they get rid of the people they're all gathering against. It's called socialism, Marxism, ladies and gentlemen. Pick up a book, read it. History. It's all over. Now, the location of their meeting, notice, is also stated. Assembled in the place of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So the members of Sanhedrin had an informal meeting here at the house of Caiaphas. And the word palace means an uncovered courtyard of the house. Uh, I'm sure he had a very luxurious house. We've been to Israel many, many times. Last time we, we were there and on the, on the side of uh, the city, David, up high on, on the um, um, northerly area, you have the, uh, the city of the Sadducees. They were the wealthy people, the aristocrats. And so they had all the beautiful homes and the, the ritual baths in their, in their houses, everything. We saw some of them. And um, Caiaphas was the high priest appointed by Valerius Gratus, governor of Judea, after the removal of Simon, the son of Cameth, in uh, A.D. 18. And then he was removed in A.D. 36 by Vitellius, governor of Syria. Now, Caiaphas had married the daughter of Annas, who had been the high priest from A.D. 6 to 15, and was still called a high priest, so he really had two high priests at the same time, Annas, his father-in-law, and Caiaphas, the husband of his daughter. Interesting. Um, Caiaphas was removed by Vitellius and then appointed Jonathan, the son of Annas. Um, interesting that from 37 B.C., to 67 A.D., 28 priests had come to power. Political power, religious power, tied together becomes massive power. We get the word simony from buying the Pope's office. Okay? This is what went on continually. No different. Now look at verse 4. The purpose of the meeting is clearly stated and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. The motive behind these men is a hatred for Jesus. They constantly oppose Jesus. Jesus constantly exposed their evil and their hypocrisy. Jesus threatened their position and power. The world does not like Jesus. The, the world does not like Christians. Please understand that. They tolerate us. They'll be friends when it's convenient. But... Darkness does not, not like light. Light exposes darkness, okay? It's just that simple. Now, these men were in the process of devising a strategy to apprehend Jesus and to put him to death. Um, the word trickery means to guile or to deceive. It's used for bait to trap an animal. Uh, political people, religious people are very clever. They, they speak out of two sides of their mouth. They can say something and make you think they mean one thing when they mean just the opposite. You know that. That's when you go voting. You have to read all those things because you think you're voting yes, but you're really voting no. It doesn't have to be like that, but it is because they're in power. Judas was to be the instrument of deceit, but Jesus was not ignorant to it. He knew it all along. He knew what was in man. How would you feel if um, you know the person sitting next to you right now had broken into your car and taken your stereo and everything? 
Would you sit there calm? Would you give him a hug? I want you to think about that, about Jesus and Judas. Okay? Whoa. Look at verse 5. The sneaky plan of the corrupt leaders to kill Jesus. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They thought they were in control. They determined the worst time would be during the feast. And logically, they are making a wise decision. They didn't want to jeopardize their position and power. But they're not in control. Jesus would be taken during the feast. <laughs> now, don't think that God forces people to do something. God only knows what people will do. So, therefore, he declares it before it happens. So, when it happens, you know he knows all things. Okay? Very important. Now, they didn't want people to be around. Rome always um, increased her armies during these feast days because of the possibility of uprising and riots and that. From 20,000 to 150,000, plus all the Roman soldiers that increased. Amazing. They feared the people, Luke 22, 2 says. Do you fear the people more than God? God help you if you do. You're to fear no man. You're to fear God. Very important. They didn't know Jesus was in control. <laughs> you know, seminaries like Fuller Seminary and others were infiltrated by neo-Orthodox, which is neither neo-new nor orthodox straight. It's by the school of Germany. It was followed up by signs and wonders of the late John Winber and then church growth movement of McGavern and Wagner, which are both dead. Then you had the seeker-friendly church of Rick Ryan, which is the stepping stone to the postmodern emergent church movement that has been and are indoctrinating all these young men for ministry to put them in American pulpits to undermine the authority of God's word and to have a church that is not biblical. That You might find that statement outlandish and ridiculous. Listen to me. The majority is always wrong. You drop the plumb line, you judge what I say by what the word of God says, and everyone else. It's the plumb line that shows you you're crooked. It'll even show you how crooked you are, even to the point of hating Jesus, attempting to destroy the word of God or disqualify the word of God. Very dangerous today. There are two sides to the hatred of Jesus. The first is the secular opposition because he is said to be God through his own words, the savior of the world. The world can't tolerate that. It can't. The humanists believe in the goodness of man, but it's kind of unraveling in his hands, right? Because they're so violent and vulgar and everything. All you have to do is look at late night things and and, and talk shows and everything and, and how militant they are and yet they believe in the goodness of man. Where? Whoa. The atheists declare God does not exist. So, you know, they're per, kind of persuaded. And the progressive educators believe and teach there is no right and wrong. Morals and ethics are puritanical and must be removed from the public square. The liberal politicians and legislators are facilitators of the liberal masses, the populace. 
All of these mention, see Christians, conservatives, patriots, and veterans as the one holding back the advancement of society into the dawn of the new age of global citizenship. You and I are part of the problem, or conservatives. And the last administration branded us as terrorists. Every one of the ones I just mentioned. Look it up. Wow. They despise freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and the rule of law. Free speech must be removed from the public square. There is to be no opposition. Nothing new. Study history. It's under socialism and Marxism. This began in the early 1900s through a group of men that met in a tavern. I've given you the history before to remove every vestige of Christianity from every public arena. They accomplished it in 100 years. Amazing. Listen to the words of Jesus. John 15, 18, 19. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You understand that? When people are nice and tolerate you, that's okay. That's all right. But push comes to shove, they're going to push. They don't love light. Especially when you're trying to tell them that they're darkness. It's just that simple. The second side is the religious opposition, and it's the most dangerous today from within the church by the liberal postmodern form of Christianity, teaching a cultural Christianity and theology, which is false Christianity. They are the most dangerous because they are within the church, passing themselves off as the true church. Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Dan Kimball, Doug Paget. And myriads of others go on the internet, type in emergent church leaders in top dogs, and you get the whole list. I'm, I'm sure I would like some of these guys. I don't have anything against them. I never met them. What I have against them is their words against Jesus, contradiction of the Bible. They do not believe we can learn any absolute truth from the Bible as emergent thinkers. They, in fact, are, uh, are, say that it is not reliable. Therefore, they believe that the Bible is not inerrant or infallible. They believe it can't be trusted. So they don't study the word of God. When they gather together, they dialogue in subjective opinions and stories while affirming clearly that we can't be sure about the Bible. Wow. Wow. If you call yourself a Christian, the Bible is the content for your revelation and your truth. If you can't trust it as reliable, then you're a flake. In fact, they accuse Christians of worshiping the Bible. Get some of the YouTube videos. Listen to these knuckleheads. They say that we made the Bible an idol. They despise the authority. Of the word of God. Thank you for the compliment. That I idolize. I worship the Bible. I sure do. It's God's good news to me. 
the only thing I can trust. The only reliable truth about creation, God, Satan, sin, any topic it touches. Psalm 138.2, listen to what God says about his word. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Now, you know what he thinks about his name. He's exalted his word above his name. Second Peter 2, 1 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even though there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will have, will follow them. Many, many, we see it. In our days, the men who hated Jesus were the religious leaders. Wow. Secondly, the woman who loved Jesus, verse 6 through 13. And 6 through 7, the tender affection demonstrated for Jesus is recorded for us. The setting now is quite different. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, verse 6 says. Bethany means house of days, two miles from Jerusalem. Some of you have been there, you know. The east side of the mountain, it's on the road on the way down to Jericho. The location is identified to be the house of Simon the leper, underline that. Simon, without doubt, had been healed by Jesus of his leprosy. That's, that's a connection. Um, remember, Mar Mar Matthew doesn't follow chronological order, but thematic order. So sometimes you'll have it in the chronology, but sometimes just thematically. The other gospels show us that the chronological order is different. Um, the time is not stated, but John helps us out telling us Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who he had raised from the dead, and he arrived six days before the Passover, John 12, 1 tells us. And then John continues to tell us about the supper at the house of Simon the leper, though he doesn't mention Simon the leper, it is the same dinner that happened two days before the Passover. So he arrived at Bethany six days before to the house of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and two days before he is there at the supper of the house of Simon the leper. Read carefully. Two different accounts. Again, John 12, 1 and 2 on down will reveal that. Now notice the woman that anointed Jesus is unnamed. A woman came to him having alabaster flax of very costly uh, fragrant oil, and she poured it on the head, on his head, and he sat as he sat on the table. Now, she came to Jesus during the dinner, considering him of greater value than the costly oil that she had brought. The alabaster flax was considered to be, uh, with, by the ancients, uh, of, of the best material, white or light gray, translucent gypsum or limestone to store precious ointments, whether it be perfume or oil or whatever it may be. And once the neck was broke open, then it would be released. The costly fragrant oil was precious. It was from India. And John tells us that it was a pound, 12 ounces, worth 300 denarii. A denarii is one day's wages, almost a year. If you look at it, it's just shy of, 
uh, of a year, biblical year, um, because the biblical year is different than the Gregorian calendar. Okay? Now, she poured the oil notice on the head of Jesus as he sat at the table here. And the word sat means to be reclined. They, they reclined back on pillows and they ate. It's different. Not like us. We don't have a Western table. If you get a picture of the Last Supper with a Western table, throw it away. It's not biblical. Okay? Um, John tells us uh, the woman was Mary, as we'll see. The sister of Lazarus, who anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance and oil, John 12 says. Notice the distinctions in all these different texts. There is no contradiction, but greater detail complementing to give a full picture, even as Jesus will indicate down in verse 12 that she poured it on my body. So his head, his feet, his body. No contradiction. Okay? Now, do not confuse this anointing also with the account of Simon the Pharisee when the prostitute washed his feet, the feet of Jesus, with her tears, dried them with her hair, and then anointed his feet with fragrant oil in Luke seven thirty six through 50. Different account. Not the same. Very important. Now look at verse 8 and 9. The callous objection to the affection demonstrated to Jesus is recorded for us. The one objecting is given, but when the, his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? In verse 8, the word but marks the sharp contrast between the disciples and Mary. Mary stands alone, completely alone to all these guys, okay? These guys are knuckleheads. She's just very, very special. The word disciples there, by the way, is in the plural. So that means the 12. They were indignant, moved with displeasure. It's the very same word that we saw in Matthew 20, 24, when the two, James and John, asked Jesus for the right hand and the left hand, and the, and the 10 got mad at the two. Indignant, same word. Mark 10, 14 also uses it. Their words um, confirmed their displeasure. Listen, why? This waste. You can even see the face. You know what I mean? No one says, why this waste? You don't do that. Your, your body matches your words, right? The one reason for objection is given. For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Wow, sounds so great. That's, oh, praise God. Hallelujah, Jesus. We love for people to think we're so spiritual where in fact we're carnal, 100% beef. John tells us it was Judas who spoke these words. Not because he cared about the poor, but rather because he pilfered the old King James. He stole five-finger discount from the treasure chest. John 12, 5 through 6. Judas was accusing Jesus of extravagance. His words were accusing Jesus of being unconcerned for the poor. Judas was more concerned, literally, is what he's saying. Wow. 
There are still people like that, by the way. Rick Warren says that he's going to get rid of the poor and AIDS. He's going to take care of both of them. All right, Jesus says you can have the poor with you always. Uh, Rick's going to say, I'm going to take care of them and get rid of them. Who am I going to believe? <laughs> well, let's move on. Um, again, Mary stands in sharp contrast here to the religious leaders who hated Jesus in verse 3 and 4, to the disciples, the dirty dozen, in verse 8, and Judas Iscariot that we'll see in verse 15. Wow. Look at verse 10 through 13. The loving commendation of the demonstration of Mary's love for Jesus is given to us here. In verse 10, the reproof by Jesus of his disciples for their wrong perception and attitude is stated. Uh, but when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. Jesus was aware of their thoughts, their words, their motives, their hearts, everything. No one needed to tell Jesus anything. Too often we forget that. You and I, you know, we're like Moses. We look to the left, look to the right. We kill the Egyptian. We forget to look up. Hmm. The disciples' reaction appeared to present themselves as spiritual, but in reality they were insensitive and they were carnal. They were unconcerned about the suffering of the death of Jesus. He's been mentioning it. We've, we've noted it five times, at least recorded. And um, they're unconcerned. They're, they're so unconcerned that they're asking for the right and the left hand. Getting, they got one thing on their mind. Man, we're going to rule. We're, Jesus said we're going to sit on 12 thrones. Man, whoo. Hmm. But Mary's actions of love really prove her to be sensitive and spiritual. What a contrast. Notice Jesus revealed their evil hearts in 10. He says, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. Trouble means to beat, smite, or cut, accusing them of condemning her. Wow. Wow. The word good callous means what is commendable, admirable, excellent. He's acknowledging Mary of the good work he does. Nothing goes unseen or unacknowledged by God. Are you more concerned with what man says about you than you're a Pharisee? If you do what you do because you love Jesus and obedient to God and you just go on and live your life, God bless you. You're a rare Christian today. Look at 11. The wrong perspective of the apostles is corrected by Jesus. For you have the poor with you always, but me, you do not have always. There's the words that I just spoke to you about, about Rick Warren. And this peace plan, which is completely out of context. In that peace plan, when he speaks to politicians, he presents it one way. When he speaks to the Christian community, he speaks another way. Wow. The words of Jesus, that they would not have Jesus always indicates the priority of time and the greater value of the one to die for the sins of the world so sinners might be saved and be spiritually rich. This was the priority. 
You know, when, when, when your car is dirty, but the oil light comes on, and you've got to do one of the two, which one are you going to do? Priorities. Now, the interpretation of Mary's deed is stated by Jesus for in pouring this fragrant oil on my body. She did it for my burial. For my burial only appears one more time in John 19, 40. Only two times in the New Testament. Jesus said she knew he was going to die. Wow. Look at 13. The proclamation of Jesus about Mary. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. The truthful reliability is given. Listen carefully. Assuredly, the word amen at the beginning places the proclamation of important, priority, pay attention, reliable. Absolute truth. If it's put at the end of the sentence, it's whatever I've said, so be it. I affirm it. The highest authority, I say to you. This is Jesus speaking. So when you go through the word of God and you realize the words of Jesus or even Paul or Anne, they're inspired by the spirit of God. It is God's word. Okay. So when people say something contrary to God's word or contradict it or, or try to minimize it, then you need to rebuke, rebuke them and reprove them depending on who they are. Correct them. The promise is given. Wherever the gospel is preached. In the whole world. Every time the gospel is preached. This woman is mentioned. This woman is brought up. Wow. Jesus says she will be remembered. Through the gospel. You might add her to the hall of faith. In Hebrews 11. <laughs> you guys remember the. Um, the widow. As Jesus and his disciple were looking down to the treasury. And she gave two mites while all these other people were being ostentatious, very demonstrative of the huge amounts they were giving. And Jesus told us, you know, you see that woman, two mites? She gave more than all of them put together. And they're going. Because she gave of what it took to live. They gave of their abundance. Wow. The Bible is clear that God is not um, impressed with what we give to God or do for God, but rather with how and why we give or do for God. What we do or give to God is to be an expression of our love for God, the purest motive. What we do or give to God is in response to the demonstration of our gratitude for the forgiveness of our sins, saving us and redeeming us. God said in giving for the building of the tabernacle, if you've read Exodus, Exodus 35, 5, 21, and 22, and many other portions, that what, whoever gave of any material, gold, silver, jewels, or linen, or whatever it was, they were to do it with a willing heart. Tell me what God honors anything. God doesn't force you. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Um, 
He says, so let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, hilarious giver. If you cannot give to God what is God's, don't pollute our offering, please. God doesn't need it. What we do for God, we do it because we love him, because we are so aware of what he's done for us and what he's doing in us and through us. And we just rejoice in him and no one else, ladies and gentlemen. No one else. The things we do are to be done to God and not for the eyes of man. Sadly, too often that's the way it's done. We've already seen in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, the charitable deeds are to be done in secret, not ostentatiously to be seen of men. In chapter 6, 5 through 8, praying in secret, not in the open square. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this woman, this man, or that dirty publican over there. Hmm. Our fasting is to be done in such a way that people don't say, Oh, are you fasting? No. Chapter 6, 18 through, 16 through 18. All these things are done before God. Because at the Bema Seat of Christ, we'll all receive our reward. The quality of the work in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 through 15. It says there that every Christian, once we're raptured, we go before the Bema Seat of Christ. And after the Bema Seat, we're married to Jesus. And at that Bema Seat of Christ, our works, which is the motive of our heart, why and how we did it in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, will be either gold, silver, or precious stone. If that's what it is, it will be turned into an object of permanency, valuable. But if I've done it to be seen of people, for people to think that I am so nice and so spiritual and so yuck, then it will be wood, hay, and stubble. Crispy critter. Gone. Now, it's possible to lose all reward. You're heaven. But you don't have to be without reward. Why and how are you doing the things you do? That's important. God is, is very interested. God wants to reward us. God wants to bless us. Not just here, but there. Now be careful those who say if you're a Christian, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. That's not biblical. It's heresy. Okay? From those people, get away from Paul says. Okay? And so the motive. So the woman who loved Jesus gave the best she had to him. Thirdly comes the man who betrayed Jesus. Verse 14 through 30. Notice verse 14 through 16. The um, treacherous deed of Judas Iscariot is given to us here. The discussion, um, the decision to betray Jesus is stated in 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest. Judas is called one of the twelve. Jesus prayed all night and chose him. Luke 6, 12 through 13. Okay. Judas is called the son of perdition in John 17, 12. So is the Antichrist. The discussion about the amount of money to betray Jesus is then given to us and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. The phrase, I deliver is emphatic. The prize was the prize of a gorged slave, Exodus twenty-one thirty-two. You know, you hear these people that kill somebody for $5,000 life insurance? 
It's crazy. It's not the money, it's the evil in the heart. You understand? The price was prophesied by Zechariah, Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. And, in, and there later on, that money was used to buy a potter's field when Judas regretted what he did. And he said, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? And he threw the money in the temple floor and they bought a potter's field. Wow. Notice the determination to accomplish the betrayal follows in verse 16. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. From that moment, Judas was looking for the most convenient time to betray Jesus. The word opportunity is an interesting word. It means a seasonable time, the particular time, the right time, the perfect time. It is used like for very specific and special occasions, summer or a birthday or a feast or something like that. Very precise. John uses it often in his gospel, especially for Jesus. It says, my time, Kairos, has not yet come for the crucifixion. John 7, 6, and 8. Now notice in 17 through 19, you have the necessary preparation for the Passover. And the setting changes again. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Um, this is Thursday. Remember now, Thursday in the morning and the evening in the day is Thursday, but at sundown is Friday. Okay, so we get all messed up with our days. Okay. Uh, the instructions of Jesus in 18, are, he said, and said, go into the city, a certain man, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, we're familiar with this account from the other Gospels in Luke 22, identifies with a man carrying water. And, and the word for man here means a certain uh, man, Mr. X, if you will, unnamed. It's only used this time in the New Testament, no other. Notice the obedience of the disciples follows in 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. All is said and ready. Everything is right on schedule. Not according to the disciples, not according to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, but according to Jesus and his Father. Look at 20 through 25. The identity of Judas the traitor is given. The location was the Passover meal. When the evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. This is Thursday evening. Again, it would be Jewish Friday at their sundown, okay? Jesus died on Thursday. They took him on Thursday, died on Friday which is when they killed the Passover lamb. Exactly. Now, all the 12 disciples are present. Notice the declaration of the betrayal in 21. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. John says Jesus was troubled in spirit when he declared this betrayal in John 13, 21. Though he knew it, he bummed out. The um, Passover, not the Lord's Supper, but the Passover, which he celebrates. Let me give you some background. The first cup, the bitter herbs, 
the unleavened bread, the roasted lamb, the house father dipped the bitter herbs with the benediction and all ate. The second cup is mixed with wine and water and the son asked the father to explain the feast. The first part of the hell songs were sung, 113 to 114, with a, a prayer and a praise and the second cup was drunk and the father washed his hands, took two cakes of the bread, um, breaks one of them, lays it on the unbroken one, blesses the bread, uh, all the earth, wraps the broken piece with herbs, dips it in, eats it with a piece of lamb, then all join in to eat. This is where we are right here. Now as they were eating, this is where we're at. The close came when the last morsel of the lamb, after which no one ate, then came the third cup. The second part of the Hallel 115 to 118, the fourth cup, sometimes the fifth, the conclusion of the Hallel's Psalm 120 to 137. That's the Passover. That's not the New Testament Lord's Supper that he'll go into. Two distinct things. Now notice the acknowledgement that each thought they had the potential to betray him follows. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Verse 22. They were sorrowful. They became grieved, sad, uneasy, and rightly so. Mark says they began to say one by one, is it I? Mark 14, 19. Luke says they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this, Luke twenty two twenty three. Can you imagine? Hey, did you? Are you doing it? John says. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. John thirteen twenty two. Wow. Notice in twenty three the revelation about the betrayer. Jesus gives the sign and warning to him. He answered and said. He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Jesus had already washed the feet of the twelve, even Judas, in John 13, 1 through 11. If you follow, we don't have time this morning. If you follow, you will find so many opportunities. Jesus kept asking and giving Judas to repent. He did not. The betrayal of Judas was prophetic by Ahithophel, the friend of David, as counselor. Let me read Psalm 41.9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus gave Judas the bread and said, What you do, do quickly, John 13.26-27. After the Passover, Judas left. He wasn't there for the Lord's Supper. But Jesus had washed his feet and begged him to repent over and over again. Now notice the declaration of warning to the betrayer. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Wow. The phrase Son of Man is the title of Messiah, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. The betrayal and death of Jesus was prophetic, underlined, just as it is written. Not because God predestined or forced Judas to commit the sin, 
but only that God knew what he would do and he declared it beforehand. Otherwise, God would be unjust and unholy to force a man to commit such sin, then condemn him for that sin. He could not be holy, he could not be good, he could not be just. Judas Iscariot was fully responsible for his decision. He rejected the way of repentance. The confession of Judas, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you've said it, verse 25. He had heard each of the disciples says, Lord, is it I? And he knew, nope, not him. Because that was him. And he knew it. And he didn't repent. Look at verse 26 through 30. The institution of the Lord's Supper is now given. So the Passover is over. Judas had left. The Passover was in fulfillment of the exodus of Egypt, as you know. But there's no lamb mentioned here. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's going to die for the world. The Lord's Supper is introduced now, verse 26 to 28. 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. This body was offered for our sins, resulting in death. The wrath of God was poured upon him. Not a bone of his was broken, according to Numbers uh, 9, 12, Psalm 34, 20. Everything fulfillment perfectly. 27 says, Then he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, and said, Drink this uh, drink it from it, all of you. The supper was representative of his sacrifice. It wasn't what the Catholics teach, transubstantiation, that the, bo- the bread and the cup turn into the literal body and blood of Christ. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus was standing right there, okay? For this is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. Verse 28. His blood is shed. The new covenant. To ensure forgiveness of sins. Verse 27 and 8 says. And the covenant has the idea of cutting. They would cut an animal in two. Separate it. And the people who walked in the midst of it. The blood sealed it. They were responsible for the covenant. It goes back to Genesis 15. 9 through 18. Where Abraham cut the sacrifice. God is the only one who walked in the midst of it. Okay. Jeremiah 34. 18 does the same thing. Cutting that animal. This is what it means. Covenant means cutting the covenant of blood. And so, new covenant, the word new is kainos, recent and kind, superior to the old covenant. Hebrews chapter 7, 22, 8, 8, 9, 22. 1 Peter 1, 19 says the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Not, you weren't redeemed with corrupt old things as silver and gold by through the traditions of our Father. Very, very clear. Now notice the supper not only looks back to what Jesus did for us, but forward to the future day of the kingdom to partake with him. He says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And so the betrayal and the crucifixion could not take away the joy of Jesus. It was happening then, but it still has a future fulfillment in the kingdom age when he returns. Um, It says, and when they had sung a a hymn, 
they went out to the mountain of Olives. Psalm 115 to 118, 120 to 137. Just had a great time. Joyous. And he was going to the cross, ladies and gentlemen. He did it because he loved us. Wow. Matthew 26, 48 through 50 illustrates this last point vividly. Listen carefully. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whoever I kissed, he's the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. The word is repeatedly. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. The other gospel says, Do you betray, friend? Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Wow. Mm -hmm. Judas Iscariot are within the church, not outside the church. Make that very clear. The Bible is clear. Any person can be saved. Jesus said he died for the whole world, John 3, 16. Whoever. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God in Romans 10, 17. What you're hearing today is the gospel. If your heart is open to see yourself as an enemy of God, a sinner, and that he died for your sins, you can call upon him, you can be saved and forgiven. God rejects no one, not Jew, Gentile, bond, free, male, female, Scythian, barbarian. I, I gather you, you haven't gone as far as the Scythians. The Scythians would take their captives up north, cut their heads off, boil their heads, skin them, and then use them as drinking goblets. By the way, they got saved, some of them, because they repented. Wow. The Bible declares every believer has the capacity to betray Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, as the apostles acknowledged themselves. First uh, Corinthians ten twelve is a good scripture to put in your heart. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. If you say, I would never, it's just a matter of time. First Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says the latter time some will depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Seasonally, occasionally this will happen through the church age. You cannot fall away from something you're not at. For you to depart from the sanctuary you have to be in it. For you to depart from Christ you have to be in Christ. That's not a non-believer. So if you're a Calvinist, put water on your brain, it's smoking. You can walk away from Christ anytime you want. You don't, you're not forced to go to heaven. You must abide in Christ Jesus. All your teaching works. No, I'm not. Everything's all grace and faith. When you're married to a man or a woman, you can't be forced to stay married. But if you honor the marriage and you abide, you'll be okay. Right? Wow. Peter says, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled to them in them and overcome, the latter is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it. To turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Second Peter 2, 20 and 21. Is that clear? Worse than the first. That's a believer. That's not a non-believer. So the Bible is clear that if a man repents genuinely before they die. 
Jesus will forgive them, right? The key is before you die. Are you one who hates Jesus? Loves Jesus? Or betrays Jesus? Where do you fit in this category? Judas is scared, refused to repent, having been given many opportunities, so he hung himself. Peter denied Jesus three times by an oath and cussing. But he repented and he was used greatly by God. Wow. The man Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, did so knowingly. Knowingly, ladies and gentlemen. So which group do you fall into regarding your attitude towards Jesus? The men who hate Jesus were the religious leaders. Are you just religious? The woman who loved Jesus gave the best she had to him. She wasn't looking for acknowledgement. But she got it from the right person. The man who betrayed Jesus did so knowingly by rejecting repentance. Wow. Heavy stuff to warn us. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, for those that are here and, Lord, those in the, somewhere in the world through the radio and over the Internet. You minister to them. They see their need of you, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you call upon him, he will save you right now. Simple prayer. This is your prayer. You want to be born again. If you see yourself as a sinner against God. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.